I'm Professor Michael Clark. I was the director of the Royal United Services Institute. I'm now a defence analyst and I work for a couple of the committees in Parliament as an advisor. We're here at the University of St Andrews at the Air Power Conference, looking at the future of air power, thinking about where air power goes, technically, militarily, and in my case, politically. The use of air power is about a century old. We're looking at the anniversary of the First World War, where air power was first used to some real effect. A lot of the advocates of air power 50 years ago said this is a war-winning weapon on its own. Well, that wasn't really true, and it still isn't true. But air power has matured across so many different technologies so that it unites the technologies that navies use, that armies use, the movement into space, even in cyber. So in every dimension of warfare, and there are six or seven, air power is important. Air power is the great facilitator of military affairs. Now, of course, we've had a number of wars since the end of the Cold War, since 1991, which have been pretty controversial. By and large, the first group of operations, there have been 20-odd of them, the first 10 or 12 were pretty successful. Small operations in the Balkans, uh, operations in Sierra Leone, operations in East Timor, even operations in Somalia that were militarily quite successful. But then, after 2001, there were a series of operations which were much more controversial, mainly, of course, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and then the whole episode of Afghanistan in 2001, and then again re-engaging with Afghanistan in 2006. Now with the collapse of the Middle East, in effect, the Levant is in meltdown from the Mediterranean through to the Gulf. And the crises in Syria and Iraq have brought again the controversial nature of air power into prominence. We see air power being used not just by the West, but also pretty brutally by the Russians and the Syrians in a situation of enormous human misery across northern Syria and northern Iraq. So this is a pretty good time to consider the political context in which air power is used. We understand the technical context and the military context, but our political understanding of when those technologies should be employed is, in my view, at least 20 or 30 years behind the times. The particular problems of the political perception of air power arise because, in a way, air power is the victim of its own success. It's symbolically very important. When you see air power, it looks like a pretty good military capability. Modern aircraft are scary things. They're mean machines. They go to war with a vengeance. Air power can deliver effect with enormous precision. The brimstone missile, for instance, can go through the left-hand side of a car's window as opposed to the right-hand side, which is so accurate. Equally, air power is still used around the world for carpet bombing and mass bombing and barrel bombing, which could not be more indiscriminate. The symbolism of using air power is always very important. Both the public and politicians are seduced by the sheer military might that air power can bring to bear. But they don't really think about the elements of accuracy or the limitations. And most of the limitations on the use of air power are political limitations. The fact that air power can do so much tempts some politicians to use it too much. They create strategies which then go wrong as has happened three or four times in the last decade or so. Equally, it convinces the public that we're doing something, and that's partly why politicians like it. This urge to do something without committing troops on the ground or committing too much money or too much political capital to an event, politicians use air power to show that they're deploying a really war-winning weapon 
decisively in an operation. And, and of course, depending on the context, Air Pan may not be a decisive war-winning weapon. Just because it delivers great weapons very accurately against a target doesn't mean to say that it's achieving the strategic effect. Air power advocates, and certainly Western Air Forces, they realize the power but also the limitations of what they can do. I'm not sure politicians and the public realize the political limitations that they should be operating under. I think the key disconnect is that air power acting alone is powerful, but is politically limited. There's only a certain amount you can do from the air. And to affect the politics of an area that's in a state of civil war or an area that's being contested, somebody, somebody has to be on the ground. Somebody has to occupy the areas, occupy the buildings, occupy the telephone systems that the country will use. Now, air power can have a big effect on that, but it can't create it in itself. The danger that we face, I think, is that public and politicians feel that if we've deployed air power at a distance, delivering weapons or listening or surveilling with great power and precision, if we've done that, then somehow we are going to affect the result. Well, we can create the conditions for the result, but unless somebody is prepared to occupy the ground, then the result will not be what we want. That leads to the situation where this disconnect means that the use of air power is seen as enough, when in fact it's not enough, it's the necessary but not sufficient condition for real strategic success. One of the solutions to this is that the Air Forces, Western Air Forces, and particularly the RAF, I think they've got to tell their story a little bit differently. Since I was a boy, I've loved the RAF and I've been fascinated by aeroplanes and the RAF. But the way the RAF tells its story is quite frustrating in a way because it concentrates so much on the aeroplanes. When we look at the F-35, the Lightning II, we think about the Spitfire and the Sopwith Campbell. There's this natural boy's own tendency to think about wings and tails and literally wonderful aeroplanes. Air power is about much more subtle things. It's about surveillance, it's about satellites, it's about communications, and it's about the physical and mental skills of the people who make it work. Until you invest those aeroplanes and all that equipment with flesh and blood and imagination, then you haven't got an air force. The RAF has concentrated, because it's a very technocratic service, it concentrates on the technology and not enough on the people. And I suspect that the politicians and the public have taken up that concentration on the technology. Whereas the Army and the Navy have got lots of history that they can look to when they commemorate, the RAF commemorates the Battle of Britain and the Dambusters. But there's a great deal more that the RAF could and should talk about and should try to push into the political domain. The RAF suffers from a two-dimensional rather than a three-dimensional profile, which it really deserves. Brexit will be very important to Britain's defence capabilities across the board, but in particular in relation to air power, because Britain provides the bulk of European NATO's capabilities. Take the United States out of the equation, think of it only in the European Union or European context, and Britain is the most important military player. France is also an important player, but Britain provides actually more than France does in most areas. Certainly Britain is doing more of the R&D, the research and development, about 40% of all military research and development across the European Union is British. Now, if all of that R&D leaves the European space altogether, that will affect both what the Europeans can do, and it will repatriate some of the effects of that R&D to Britain. But that's not necessarily a, a very good thing. So I think we've got to work quite hard to maintain as much of the 
cross-European, pan-European security relationship that we've enjoyed for the last 30 or 40 years. We say that Brexit shouldn't affect these things because Brexit is only about the European Union. But the reality is, and we can already see this in the arguments about the Galileo project, which is very important, we already see that the effect of Brexit is leaching into other bilateral relationships, other areas of our normal relationships with our European partners. And I really worry that the effect of Brexit is going to leave Britain isolated in security and defence areas where we don't need to be. I think we've got to work extra hard to be very pro-European in our defence and security. Doing that will also make us better and more useful allies to the United States, which is also moving in different directions which are not necessarily consistent with what Britain wants to do. So I think overall the next five to ten years are really critical for British defence and security. We've got to play very hard to maintain what we took for granted ten years ago and the air power component of that is probably the most sensitive the most public, the most politically obvious, and the one that can lead the way in establishing really strong defence relationships or re-establishing them across the North Atlantic community at a time when they're in serious danger. The Franco-German alliance is a very political act and we'll have to see what the reality of it becomes. President Macron is determined to re-energise the European Union and re-energise France's role within Europe in general, inside and outside the Union. Mrs Merkel in Germany is in a much weaker position than she used to be, and she's obviously more cautious. It's easy for Britain to sit back and say, well, this Franco-German alliance, good luck with it, we'll look at it again in three or four years' time and see if it's gone anywhere. Now, the fact is that politics are moving very quickly in Europe, and so I don't think we should be complacent about this. The Franco-German alliance has the intention of creating a new generation fighter, which the British will be left out of, in other words, as the successor to Typhoon. Now, I suspect that when it comes to it, it will be a good old-fashioned collaboration, because I think France and Germany will find it difficult to do it without Britain and without the things that we can bring, but we'll see. The nature of warfare doesn't alter very much. The nature of warfare is about the battle of wills between two groups of people who are prepared to operate lethal force and, if necessary, die in large numbers in order to impose their will. That goes back 3,000 years of recorded history. But the character of warfare changes all the time. The way in which that battle of wills is expressed keeps on changing for social and technological reasons. We have no idea, really, what warfare might look like in 10 years' time with the use of cyber, with the use of social media, with the use of new nanotechnologies, with the ability to use biotechnology to actually breed people who in 30 years' time could be in the front line, who have special characteristics, intellectual or physical characteristics. We just don't know. One of the major novel technologies, of course, may be quantum computing, that will be a different order of computing altogether, possibly 100 million times faster than anything we have at the moment. And as and when that arrives, then it will undermine all of the computing we've had for the last couple of generations. Standard computing is based on silicon chips, which are very, very small. But quantum computing is based on subatomic particles. And the point about that is that whereas normal particles that are used in silicon chips can either be one or zero, and the computer very quickly makes a series of rapid calculations, in quantum computing, a subatomic particle can be both one and zero simultaneously. And what that can mean 
is that a quantum computer could be up to 100 million times faster than standard computers. Now, the problem with quantum computers is that they do exist, but they only do very rudimentary calculations at the moment because it's very difficult to keep subatomic particles stable enough in order to make their calculations. But if quantum computing arrives, and everyone more or less agrees it will arrive somewhere within the next 10 to 30 years, then it will smash right through all of the encryption we presently have in the computing that we now do. And then we ask ourselves, well, if quantum computing becomes an operational reality, who will have it first? The United States and China and Russia. And where that leaves countries like the United Kingdom, having elements of the technology of quantum computing and certainly some of the knowledge is then somewhat open to question. So the character of war is likely to change radically in the next 10 to 20 years in ways we can only dimly perceive. And that's something that I wouldn't have said 20 years ago or even 40 years ago. Change was certainly intrinsic in those years, but you could understand the rough directions of change. Now, what I call the gaseous cloud of the unimaginable is quite close, and we only dimly understand what sorts of things might happen. However, as far as we can tell, if there is one consistent strand which unites the ways in which wars might be fought in the future, it is the use of the air, the third dimension, and space. And that use of air power, not just air power in terms of aircraft, but in terms of drones and robotic drones, right through to satellites and to some of the cyber technologies that need to operate in and off those satellites. The use of air is probably the single biggest integrative factor in the ability to fight wars in the future, even though we can only dimly perceive what their characteristics will be by then.